Uh, if you've got your Bibles there, please open them to Daniel. We're going to be starting at chapter 1 in Daniel. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, there's Bibles up the back. You can grab one and uh, look on with us. It's really important that we have God's Word open before us. Um, I'll just say too, next week um, when we have that morning tea, husbands, fathers, that's a great opportunity for you to provide morning tea and not get the mums to provide morning tea for themselves. Um, so let's serve our wives and our mums in that way. Daniel chapter 1, we should all be there now. Let's go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel he gave the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and asked the chief official to, for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men at your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Then Daniel said to him, who had, to the official who had, uh, had been appointed over him, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his, whole, in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there 
until the first year of King Cyrus. Thanks, Jeff. Welcome all. Uh, Youth Church, that's your cue if you'd like to head out to the back. Um, if you're new or visiting or if you've been with us for a couple of weeks uh, in a row, it's really lovely to have some new folk about. Um, a special welcome to you. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at WEC. And uh, yeah, as, uh, as Luke mentioned, it's good to be back in a book of the Bible and we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, about that as we go, as we look at Daniel 1. But how about as, uh, as we start, we pray. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for that you've, you've preserved these accounts of historical events, of real people and real places and real toings and froings, and you've preserved them and you've kept them, and therefore our instruction to see Jesus more clearly, to respond to you more favorably and faithfully, uh, and that trusting you, you would actually be saving us uh, in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we do begin a new sermon series in the book of Daniel, and I am looking forward to getting back into the staple diet. What we normally do here at Wagga Evangelical Church is preaching and learning focused on one book of the Bible at a time, really just working through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, all the way through. I mean, I hope you enjoyed our last uh, series, our Statement of Belief series. And if you did miss one, if you missed any of those, I think there were seven in the series, please get online through our podcast, however you get your podcast. I don't understand how it works. I just click something and it comes up. But we do have a podcast thing, I'm, I'm reliably told. Whatever they are, Spotify, Apple, something, yeah, yeah you'll get it. Um, access there, go back and listen to them by all means. But now we're on to the book of Daniel and we we'll really will be aiming to sort of do a chapter or two a week and just letting God's word set the agenda, dealing with the issues and the implications as they crop up. That's, what we, that's why we love preaching through books. But as we go to Daniel, I've got to tell you up front that I've got a bit of a problem with the book of Daniel. There's a bit of a niggle and a concern in the back of my mind. It's not to do with the book of Daniel itself, by the way. It's more to do with the way that Christians often read and understand and apply the book of Daniel. And it really starts in from childhood onward, I find. What I mean is, if, if you're here and you're a Christian, you're familiar with the book of Daniel, and I ask you, what's the first thing you think about the book of Daniel? What would you say? Yeah, the lion's den. Absolutely. The image and the story that gets the most focus in Daniel's life is the Daniel and the lion's den story. In fact, you have a look here. You, you just search Book of Daniel in Google Images. That's what you'll get, right? Repeated theme much? Yeah. You look at kids' Bibles. In fact, you know, when, kids, uh, when the authors of kids' Bibles are trying to condense down, what's the important? What is it that they focus on from the, the Book of Daniel? Inevitably, it's the lion's den story. Now, that's not a problem. The, the, the lion's den is a fabulous part of the book. It's memorable, and we'll deal with it in chapter 6, but my issue is it's not the major focus of the book itself. In fact, that event, do you realise that that event of Daniel and the lion's den happens when Daniel's about 80 years oldish? you realise that happens at the very end of his life? My issue then is that we focus here, then we've missed or we've glossed over more like six decades of pure gold leading up to that moment in his life. And more than that, just to have Daniel in the lion's den as your reference point for the whole book of Daniel, what ends up being the moral to the story or the Christian application that you remember? See, my fear is that it leans people towards either moralism or shallow, potentially even twisted theology. Let me explain what I mean by that. By moralism, I just mean we inadvertently, if we inadvertently focus too much attention on Daniel admiring his faith and his courage under fire. And if we end up thinking that the implication is just go and be more like Daniel, it's not a terrible thing. It's not a bad idea. Go and be more like Daniel. 
We should pray for faith and courage like him, but it's not the big idea and it's not the most impressing or pressing thing to realise from the book of Daniel. And neither is the shallow and what I say even misguided or potentially twisted theology that people often draw when all they focus on is Daniel in the lion's den. Far too many Christians think that this account is about God's miraculous saving of his people. And again, let's be clear, it was miraculous that God sent angels to shut the mouths of hungry lions and prevent Daniel from getting eaten, torn limb from limb. That's a miracle. But just focusing there, what tends to happen is Christians then tee off and they suggest that this is the major point, that Christians need to realise that God will always miraculously deliver his people from injustice and abuse. And that's just not true. <laughs> that's just not true. I mean, how many countless examples do you need to be convinced that that isn't so? It wasn't true for Christians in the days of Emperor Nero. How many Christians lost their lives in the Colosseum, torn limb from limb from lions? It wasn't even true of Jesus, by the way, who was the greatest victim of injustice and abuse you could ever imagine. And God not only allowed for him to go to the cross, actually Jesus went as part of the Father's set purpose and foreknowledge. Look at Acts 2, 23. It'll come up on the screen. It wasn't by accident or by chance that Jesus went to the cross. He went there according to the Father's set purpose and foreknowledge. So the idea of guaranteed divine deliverance from all worldly pain or mistreatment, even physical death, is not the promise of God in Daniel and it's not the promise anywhere else in the Bible. And it's unhelpful and it will stunt your growth as a Christian if that's where you land after reading Daniel. So what is the big idea of Daniel? Why has God preserved this book for us? What are the big implications for Christians in the room right now? I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> because the importance and the significance of Daniel is much more, it's much bigger than just being courageous as Christians. It's not less than that. It's not absent or unimportant, but it's much, much more. Instead, the book of Daniel really does give us the widest possible view of the awesomeness of God. It gives us the widest possible view of his faithfulness to his people, often in spite of and seemingly in direct contrast to what we witness on the surface, surface of history with our eyes. Do you get this? Often in spite of what we witness and what we assess, this is pointing out the enormity of God's faithfulness, his majesty and his sovereign control. Now, I've called this, this sermon series The Clash of Kingdoms because at one level, what I mean by that is the surface level, this book really is filled with accounts all about kings and nations fighting for dominion and control in the ancient Near East. We'll see this, in fact, the very first verse in a moment. Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar coming up against King Jehoiakim of Judah. Later, we'll read about the Persians and the Medes conquering the Babylonians and then we'll hear about the Greeks knocking off the Persians and then we'll hear allusions to the Greeks getting rolled by the Romans and so on and so forth. All through the book, there are details of prophetic expectations of kingdoms and kings and empires rising and falling, rising and falling. For a whole host of reasons, they rise and they fall, but that's all on the surface. That's on the level of history. But at a much deeper and more profound level, below the surface, or actually probably better, above the surface, above mere appearances, there is a more significant and important clash of kingdoms going on. When we read Daniel and when we understand Daniel well, we'll see this is all about God establishing his kingdom. 
It's about him establishing his purposes. It's about God demonstrating the enormity of his power and his rule as king over the universe, not just the ancient Near East. Because it's God who is directing and orchestrating and operating over and through every event on the surface of history. Mark that down. Even when pagan kings and hostile nations are in power, God is still ruling and reigning and bringing about his eternal kingdom plans. Even when it's through evil plans and horrendous kings and kingdoms, Yahweh is still in charge. And this is what makes the book of Daniel so important for us as Christians still today. It's what gives the book of Daniel, I want to say, that generational significance. So much so that if we were here in a thousand years' time and God hadn't sent Jesus back to wrap the show up, it would still be worth reading. Because the truth is, although we live in a very different age and stage of history from Daniel and the characters we read about, I mean, for the majority of us at least, um, None of us, are re- or not many of us, would be refugees or exiles living in a country or a culture different from our birth. But we are living in a country and in a culture that is largely and increasingly pagan in its orientation. Do you realise that? We, we are fortunate to still have a, a Christian prime minister and other genuine believers still occupying significant roles of leadership in our society. But again, make no mistake, Christians are increasingly finding themselves in the minority you will increasingly, as a Christian, find yourself on the fringe of social acceptability. If you're fair income, you will. I, I can't remember who wrote it, and I was looking through the books trying to find it, but there's a Christian writer who described it similar to what Luke said earlier. Christians in Australia have for centuries been like, we live in like the home team. Right? Thanks to the Christendom, the rise of Western culture, we've been the crowd favourites for centuries. And for the first time in our lives, for the first time in living memories... We're suddenly we're the away team. In the public square of life and increasingly Christians are and should expect to be treated more like the New South Wales Blues at Lang Park in Queensland, Game 3, Decider, Origin Night. If you're not a rugby league fan, sanctification's a slow process, I'll pray for you. Um, know that that is an illustration of extraordinary open hostility, all right? So what do we do with that? How do you play as the away team? How do you go from being the good guys to suddenly being the bad guys, which is pretty much the rap that Christians get these days? How does the book of Daniel actually help us then understand God better and therefore live as Christians, live well in our present age? Well, that's where we've got to turn to chapter 1. So the first thing I want you to notice from chapter 1 in this passage is that the God of the Bible always keeps his promises, but that may look different to what you expect at first god always keeps his promises but that may not always look the way you think now do you get that it's really crucial that you do god's 100 percent faithful he always has been and he always will be in control of all things but that may play out differently in your life than you'd expect where do we see this we'll look first at daniel 1 and 2 this is what it says. Now, I haven't included these ones on the screen. I really want you to be in your Bibles for this because we're just going through the books. There's no flipping about. In Daniel, we'll be sticking there. And if there's extra verses, I'll put them up on the screen. Daniel uh, 1, 1 and 2 says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Besieged it. Here's the setup, right? Yeah? Pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, from a pagan nation, Babylon. He's marched up on Yahweh's people, the kingdom of Judah. 
Now, it would be reasonable to think at first glance that if Yahweh is who he says he is, i.e. if he is the one and true living God, the first, the last, apart from whom there is no God, that's what we read in Isaiah 44, 6. If God is the one who entered into a covenant relationship with this fledgling nation of Israel, even it was just when it was just one man, Abram, in Genesis 15, if this is who God is, and it's easy to think, This ought to be a walk in the park. You'd be forgiven for expecting that God will give King Nebuchadnezzar an absolute hiding, a public shellacking, and send him packing. He's done it before. He did it to King Sennacherib of Assyria when they come up on Judah in, uh, what, Isaiah 37, 36? I've got a scribble there. I can't can't even read it. So, is that, yeah. (laughs) In fact, what it says there is that the angel of the Lord put a hundred and 85,000 Assyrian soldiers to death in a night. He turned the tables on them in a single event. He's done it before. You should, should we be expecting him to do it again? It's not what happens. In fact, look at verse 2. It reads like this, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, that's King Nebuchadnezzar's, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. What is going on? This is not what you'd expect. But like I said, God is in control and he always keeps his promises. In fact, did you notice the reason for Babylon's Babylon's victory here? I mean, on the surface of history, most would say it was due to a larger army and superior military tactics, and on the surface that may be true, but notice the clear reason above the surface. Look at verse 2 again, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. Quite literally, the phrase here is, the Lord gave. Now, I mention this because it's not the only time this phrase, God gave, it's used several times in this chapter to underline and point out the divine control of God operating over the surface. God gave Jehoiakim into uh, Nebuchadnezzar's hands. We'll see God giving uh, Daniel and Meshach and his his mates superior wisdom. God giving a favourable outcome to those guys in the eyes of the chief official. We'll see that phrase time and time again. God is, Yahweh's still in charge. Despite the appearances on on the surface. But why did Babylon conquer Judah? Because God gave them over. Make no mistake of that. The question's got to be then, why did he do this to his people? If he's so powerful, he's so in control, why would he allow them to be conquered? Actually, more troublingly, why would he be active in giving them over? That's the obvious question we've got to answer, isn't it? But like I mentioned before, we did uh, Isaiah not long ago, and it's not by accident that we're now doing Daniel. In fact, in real terms, you could suggest Daniel is a continuation from Isaiah. The accounts of Daniel's life really pick up where Isaiah left off. It's a kind of you know, a sequel, if you will. So we've got to read Daniel in light of Isaiah. And what was the guarantee of Isaiah? Have a look at Isaiah 39.5 on the screen. This is what Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, just a couple of kings back from Jehoiakim, the then king of Judah. He said this, he said, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will come, surely come, when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, they'll be taken away. They'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
You see, this was God's guarantee through Isaiah. It was the guarantee for the consequences of Judah's constant rebellion against God. We hear it time and time again. In fact, it's nauseating when you go through Isaiah. Time and time again that as a nation, they had consistently ignored God's prophets. They had continually ignored God's warnings. They had repeatedly accepted and bowed down to the false gods of the nations. And God promised for the sake of his holy name that he wouldn't ignore this that he wouldn't pretend it was okay. In fact, he promised he would send them into exile. And here we are at the beginning of Daniel. God's still in control. God himself still undefeated. And God is still keeping his promises, even when it looks different than you'd expect. In fact, even when it looks and means punishing and disciplining his people. And again, make no mistake, friends, this this is what it is. This is not God abandoning all his other promises. This is not him orchestrating the ultimate demise of his people forevermore. No, we'll see examples of this all through the book, of God's faithfulness and his divine protection of his people, even in exile. But this does not exclude disciplining his people. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye to sinful rejection and stupidity. God hasn't done that in the past and he won't do this in the future. In fact, it's this first thing, that this is the first principle, I think, still relevant for us today as Christians. The wonderful promises of God, of salvation through Jesus, of which we make a big song and dance about as Christians, and we ought, that is true and correct and solid as a rock. All who are in Christ and are looking to and trusting him for forgiveness, eternal salvation is your guarantee. Hear that, hear that so clearly. Ask God to nail that so deeply into your heart that you'll never forget it. But that does not mean God will never discipline you now. In fact, he will because he loves you as a father. Your sins are forgiven and paid in full by Jesus, but that does not mean that God will never let you feel the weight of consequence for sinful decisions in the here and now. Do you understand that? Like any loving father, our heavenly father, he won't protect us from every temporal consequence of sin. I mean, there's a thousand different ways. To, let me give you a, a, a... Actually, it's all too real an illustration. If you greedily invest in a dodgy get-rich-quick scheme and lose your house and savings, you'll feel the weight of earthly pain. It won't affect your salvation if you're in Christ. In fact, God will use it to grow you as you realize your error and he causes you to repent. But it doesn't mean you won't need to eat two-minute noodles for a season or two. Do you see what I'm talking about? In fact, listen to how the writer of the Hebrews puts it. Have a look at it on the screen. Hebrews 12.10 says this. We've got it printed out on our cupboard. Help remind our kids when they're in the naughty corner. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Friends, this is what is happening now in the book of Daniel. God is judging the sin of those who have rejected him, and at the same time, he is, punish- sorry, he is disciplining his people like Daniel for their good. And then you've got to go, well, how the heck is this for Daniel's good? He doesn't seem to be the the guy rejecting him. How the heck is this for his good? Well, did you notice the Hebrews verse, the purpose of God's discipline? Verse 10, so that his people might share in his holiness. 
That is, God is working so his people would know how to live distinct as his people, especially when the world at large doesn't care to do so. In fact, this is the second point I want you to see from Daniel 1. This is the second point I want you to see from this chapter. God expects you to grow in holiness, whatever the circumstances of your life, whatever the cost. Let me repeat that. God expects you to grow in holiness, whatever the circumstances of your life, present circumstances of your life, and whatever the cost. Even when you're living in a pagan land, even when you're working for a pagan boss, God is calling his people to live distinctively for him. That's what holiness means. Even when it's not comfortable, even when it's not convenient, even when it's threatening to your health and safety. Now, where do I get that from? It's a big statement to make. Really, you've got to see this. It's weaved all through the rest of chapter 1. Now, let me just paint the picture, because imagine what it was like for Daniel in this story. In fact, we learn from uh, verses 3 and 4 that he's either of royal or at least of noble birth. He's a young man, probably suggests he's around about the age of 18. He's been living in a city that's been under siege for months. In fact, sometimes Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to a city for years, which means cutting off all its food and water supply. It's not a, not a nice place to be. In fact, if you remember anything of the conditions of living in a city under siege from Isaiah, then you remember it's worse than you can imagine. Daniel's city has finally fallen. He finds himself as one of the first captives taken back to Babylon with the intention that he become a servant, a eunuch, for King Nebuchadnezzar. Imagine what it would be like for Daniel to process, process all this. He's just seen thousands of his king's folk killed. He's just seen the temple of his God looted. And now he's forcibly taken from his homeland into the service of a king. Is that enough to warrant Daniel a little bit of a crisis of faith, do you think? I reckon so, wouldn't you? But then add to this hurt, add to this the confusion of being treated extremely well by your captor. In fact, as we heard in the reading, Daniel is one of the lucky few selected for preferential treatment by the king, by the king of the world's superpower. In fact, you can probably think about it a little bit like winning, stretch of a term, but winning a prestigious scholarship. In fact, we heard that in verses 4 and 5. He's put into a three-year program with the best and the brightest to learn from this humanly speaking superior culture, to learn their language, to learn their customs, and get this, to eat food from the king's own table? I can guarantee there'd be no two-minute noodles there. Is this enough to cause Daniel to toss his faith in God in, to throw in his lot, lock, stock and barrel with the pagan nation? And let's be clear, this is the plan and intention of King Nebuchadnezzar. Don't miss this again. This is exactly how you conquer a nation properly. Sorry, don't take notes on this as if you're going to go and conquer nations now. But I mean, if you want to conquer a nation, you know the best way to conquer a nation? It's not to go and kill everyone. It's one way of doing it. Better still to assimilate the best and the brightest, to re-educate, to re-indoctrinate. In fact, make it so comfortable being a captive that you don't want to leave. That's how you really get rid of a nation. Treat them so well that they forget their former country, they forget their former culture, they forget their former way of life, so much so that they even reject the God of their youth. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar was planning for. That's what he was intending for Daniel and his fellow captives. He even gave them, verse, in verse 7, different names after Babylonian gods. Just to remind them of who they should now identify themselves with. Surely this is enough to suggest, you would assume, 
that Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's a phony. He's a shonk. He's a namby-pamby, nothing God. He's powerless. He is not worth trusting. Better to go with the pagan lot. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But it's not the way it goes. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, the word to notice here is that word defile. This really hangs off the word defile, this whole, the whole significance of this. Because defilement is linked to the idea of cleanliness or, again, holiness before God. And there's several ways that Old Testament Israelites expressed this idea of being undefiled. They expressed it through uh, hygiene practices, you know, washing of hands and washing, certain washings, cultural, uh, cultic rituals, rather. But ultimately, it's all about being distinct as a follower of Yahweh. To be undefiled is to be known and to be clean, to be distinct as a follower of Yahweh. Now, what's odd about this is clearly, despite everything that's happened, God has continued to impress upon Daniel the need to be holy, to be distinct as his follower, even in a pagan palace. And Daniel reconciles that he can live as a servant in a new place, he can learn a new language, he can even answer to a new name. And he can do all that and still remain undefiled, still continue to be distinctive as a follower of Yahweh, but to eat from the king's table, which would be symbolically to suggest that he's in cahoots with the king, that he's in good relationship with the king, that he's actually happy about this scenario. No, no, that's a step too far. And because Daniel knew that God expects his people to maintain and in fact grow in holiness, regardless of their circumstances, wherever they are, whatever the cost, Daniel refuses the king's food at great risk to his own safety, not to mention the expense to his own level of comfort. I mean, it's not referred to as choice food because it was rubbish. <laughs> it's called choice food in verse 16 because it's proper fancy. It would have been of the most lavish spread you could imagine available. Can you imagine the sight and the smell of that? That would have been impossible to ignore, and yet Daniel's first priority, it's not to his comfort and his convenience. His first priority is towards his holiness, that is his desire to express his allegiance and be distinctive to Yahweh. Now, if we had more time, I'd look at how God honours Daniel's faithfulness here. We'd, we'd look in the book at the examples of God's divine protection and favour given to Daniel. Uh, we'd look at verse 9, where God supernaturally gives favour in the eyes of the chief official to Daniel. Or verse 15, where God supernaturally fattens up Daniel and his mates on a suboptimal diet. Actually, the translation goes that on a, on a diet of food, uh, vegetables and water, they were fatter of flesh. You're supposed to go, well, that doesn't make sense. Unless it was all starchy potato sort of stuff, you know. <laughs> or verse 17, where God supernaturally gives Daniel and his mates superior learning and knowledge, ten times better than the best that Babylon could produce. All of these things are reinforcing the fact that God is still in control. But the implicationary point that I don't want us to miss here as we wind up is this call to holiness and distinction as followers of God. This is where chapter 1 ought really hit home for Christians, for us in the 21st century. For us as Christians on the other side of the cross of Christ. Because just as God expected holiness from his people... For them to live distinctly as his followers against a pagan backdrop, God expects nothing less from his people today. Do you realize that? 
In fact, I think there's a sense in which we could suggest that God should expect more from us. Because we know how the story ends, folks. And though we live in a world increasingly hostile to God and his people, we also live in light of the cross, where God has publicly demonstrated and confirmed his universal power, his universal wisdom, his universal judgment, his universal mercy in the death and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Here is God's king. Here is the only kingdom that will last into eternity. It belongs to Jesus and we're both invited and expected to live as subjects of the true King Jesus. Growing in holiness, growing in distinctiveness, no matter the cost, no matter the discomfort, no matter the inconvenience. And just to throw into the mix as well, we get the Holy Spirit as a personal advocate, comforter, guide. Tell me that you should, God should expect less from you than Daniel. Which means, friends, if you are a Christian here, you will need to be aware of the worldly expectations, of the worldly pressures, and even the worldly seductions that will attempt to rob you of your core to holy distinction as a follower of Jesus for God's glory. Because again, make no mistake, Daniel had his eyes fixed firmly on God. He didn't know him by the name Jesus, but it's the same chap. What is that going to look like? What are those pressures, those expectations, those seductions going to look like? Whether it be the expectation to call false things true. Like women can be men and men can be women. That's not true, folks. It's not true. And it's incompatible with understanding God's good design in creating us male and female. And yet if you maintain that, you will face varying threats. If you want to maintain that distinction, you will be called nasty names. But God is calling you to be holy, to be distinctive as his, regardless of the cost. Or the pressure may look like that pressure to deny that Jesus is the only way to salvation and peace with God and to deny that any other religion that says otherwise is false. You're not going to be well liked for that. You will be scorned, you'll be ridiculed, you'll be called unloving, ignorant, bigoted and intolerant if you say this. But to do otherwise is to be incompatible with God's revealed word. It's a denial of Christ as saviour, exclusive. And God expects you to be holy and distinct regardless of the cost. When it comes to seduction, the seduction of comfort and money and status, let me put it this way, you'll earn more money, you'll be promoted more often, you'll be thought of more highly by your colleagues. In fact, you will live more comfortably in the here and now if you buy into the world's seduction of careerism. If you allow work to become the idol and you spend more time and effort focused there on your work and personal achievements and the favour of people, then you do thinking about how to speak to your colleagues about the greatness of Jesus, you will be more popular. Your life will be far easier. But to do so will be incompatible with God's expectations of you to be holy, to be distinct, to be his ambassador, to be a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples of Jesus. Friends, how many people are you presently shepherding towards Christ? How many people have you thought, is this the spot to have the conversation and then kept your mouth shut? There's just a few examples, folks. There's a couple of examples. The pressures, the expectations, the seductions. 
you'll need to put flesh on the bones of your own circumstances of life, where the worldly pressures and the, that stunt your holiness, whether you're a student or a retiree or a parent or a Mongolian gold miner, I don't, whatever your circumstances. Any Mongolian gold miners here today? I thought there would be. <laughs> but as you do, folks, as you do this, as you think through this personally, as you actually assess your own life and actually work this stuff through, know this from Daniel 1, God is in control. God keeps all his promises and he's calling you to be holy for him regardless of the cost of the inconvenience and it is a thousand percent worth it. Friends, let's pray and ask God to give us help to do just that. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, it is sobering to read Daniel 1. It is sobering for many, for many reasons. It's sobering to see your awesomeness in control over all things. It's sobering to see that in light of that, we live such um, uh, double-minded lives at times. Father, we feel the pressure. We feel the seduction. We feel the expectation of the world around us. In fact, in fact sometimes, even more tragically, we don't even recognise it. And yet, Father, we hear again this morning that you are calling us to be holy, to live distinct as ambassadors for Christ, as disciples, making disciples for the glory of your name. And we ask, Father, that you would help us. We ask that you would, by your Spirit, convict us daily of that greater call, of the greater importance, of the greater opportunity that we have in Christ as brothers and sisters to know and be known by God and help others to come to know him too. Father, for your glory, would you help us to do that? In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.